Hello, everyone. Welcome to Setter Talk. I am your host, Kyle Warren. This podcast is sponsored by Embark Vet and Dr. Tim's Pet Food. Embark Vet is a DNA testing company focused on helping breeders and purebred dog enthusiasts understand and improve the genetic health of their dogs. Embark's DNA test provides a comprehensive assessment of your dog's genetic health, genetic diversity, and physical traits. Embark's DNA testing process was created in partnership with Cornell University College of Veterinary Medicine, and test results are accepted by OFA and other leading canine health organizations. To learn more, visit EmbarkVet.com forward slash breeders. And by Dr. Tim's Pet Food, created by veterinarian and accomplished musher Dr. Tim Hunt. Dog food formulas promoting stamina, endurance, and performance through proper nutrition. Dr. Tim's has been fueling champions for many years in the Iditarod, the field trial circuit, and hardworking hunting dogs all across North America. To learn more about the trusted source of nutrition for the canine athlete, visit drtims.com. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. This is Setter Talk. I'm your host, Kyle Warren. Our guest today is Tyler Sladen. Uh, Tyler's, Tyler's an avid hunter and falconer. Tyler, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, why don't you just tell our audience a little bit about your uh, upland life and background, and, and then we'll dive right into a bunch of fun stuff. So I live down in the southwest. I, I run a, a mixed pack of a lot of dogs. Um, most of my hunting is falconry. Um, I do gun hunt a good bit, and um, but falconry tends to take a priority. It, it's a much longer season. It's a 180-day season. Um, obviously, with a 180-day season, the the limits and your daily bag limits are reduced to accommodate and kind of make it fair. But um, that's a long season, and it, it requires a, a decent pack of dogs to make it all the way through especially when you're running literally every day. So uh, right now I've got two Irish setters, uh, three English setters, um, two, uh, three Vislas, a Cocker, and a Yag. So that's what I'm working with right now. Very cool. Um, and and you have uh, one, one hawk currently <laughs> to handle all those, with all those dogs, huh? Yeah, and one goshawk, yeah. I, yeah, I don't know how I forgot him. He's the most important element of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, I guess uh, um, given a 180-day season and um, uh, many people out there might follow you on social media, so they know you're incredibly active and and are out there uh, uh, most of those 180 days. Um, do uh, I guess you know our dogs, while well conditioned, well nutritioned. Um, can hunt an awful lot. We know they're not robots, and even they need a, a break once in a while. But what about hawks? Uh, do from a falconry standpoint, when when somebody like yourself is able to take full advantage of um, of a uh, hundred and eighty day season, is there any uh, are there any days that you that you look at your hawk or you look at like time on the wing and and you have to determine uh, you know the fitness level and rest for 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 a hawk? No, and that's kind of the cool thing with, with falconry, um, and it becomes like a self-rewarding behavior, is the more you do it, um, the better your bird gets. And mm-hmm. you have to think, even even in my case, where I on average I do fly at least 160 out of those 180 days, and sometimes 
my 180 days ends March 1st, but I can go to other states where their 180 days ends, ends March 31st. So I do try to get that full 180 days and, uh, the bird just keeps getting better. Um, even, even when flown that much, I don't even touch what a wild bird can do on its own and what a wild bird has to go through on its own. Granted, Mm -hmm. the setups and scenarios are completely different for a wild bird. Like a wild goshawk is never going to catch 200 quail on its own. It's just, they're, they're more opportunists and they're going to, they're going to have to hunt in stealthy ways. Whereas in a falconry sense, he's sitting on my glove, the dog goes on point, the quail come up and he pursues them in an honest drag race, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in the wild, the quail is not going to get up in the air with a hawk like that. It's just, they're not, they're yeah. not that naive. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So, I, I mean, I've seen many videos of yours over the last several years. Um, but, uh, could you just explain to everybody in terms of, uh, so your, your bird is, um, kind of harnessed on, on your arm, or in flight um, based on when during the process of the hunt, you know, do you, do you keep them tethered with you and until the dogs are on point and then release, or do you wait until there's a flush? And what's the, what's the classic uh, dynamics of the species you hunt and how your scenario plays out? So I used to try to do it that way. And then what I've learned and I was, I was holding him back and I was, I was hindering him. So Obviously, I hunt desert quail mostly, so scaled quail and gambles quail are my primary, and I hunt Mern's quail when I can, and uh, they run. It, like, it's it's no secret. They run, and mm-hmm. my dogs find them, and, and a lot of times before they even need to relocate them, my hawk can see them. And in, in years past, I used to hold them back, but he's to the point now when he sees that tail go up on one of the setters, yeah. he'll fly over there and land near him, and he's like, okay, where are the quail? He, he knows they're in the area, and he knows the dogs aren't going to lie to him. And that's kind of the team I've strived to build for the last seven years. And I finally got that. And at first I used to get annoyed because it's very easy to fall down the rabbit hole of romanticized falconry where you have this perfect picture in your head where you're going to walk in and flush and he's going to catch it on the rise. And it almost never goes that way. Um, what he has learned to do is he'll fly over to the dogs on point and then he'll pitch up, get like 60 feet in the air sometimes and kind of hover there. Yeah. And then... I'll verbally release my cocker or my visla and they will flush and um, the hawk will fold up and then begin a drag race on quail. And it's, it's become a whole new type of hunting quail that I didn't even know existed until I had the bird that yeah. kind of showed me it could be done that way. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that, that's awesome. You know, I, I, uh, I've never had the pleasure of uh, um, hunting with anybody that does falconry on, on upland birds and and you know i'm i'm up here uh in dense forest but i, I certainly have had uh, a lifetime of um uh hawks outsmarting me with uh, my my racing pigeons being a fourth generation pigeon racer and uh i've had i've had my handful of experiences uh in the woods where you know they're perched up somewhere in a tree they probably already know those birds are there just waiting for them to move so they can drop on them and the dogs go on point. I get a flush. I shoot the bird and the hawks on the bird before the dog or me can get over there. And uh, every one of my dogs, uh, when this is how, when I say everyone, this has happened 
to one dog twice, but it's happened that I can recall in my lifetime like five times. And once was uh, last winter, actually. It was pretty open where we were. But um, the bird came. I shot the bird. The bird went down, and the uh, hawk was on it before the dog or me could get there. And the dog was, you know, trotting right over to where the bird was. That hawk came down, and the dog just stopped. You know, didn't <laughs> didn't know what the thing. I mean, it never had seen that before. <laughs> Um, and it was one of my most cautious dogs, but, um, tell us a little bit about, you know, you got a, you got a big pack of dogs. Um, obviously there's certain, there's certain breeds that have a history with falconry more than others. Um, obviously any really good dog that's has some caution as intelligent, I was imagine can, can learn to work well with a hawk, but tell us a little bit about, um, the respect that's given or, or the respect that you need to help a dog have uh, for your hawk once it gets, you know, Tyler. Yeah, yeah. that's uh, with some birds. You, yeah, I'm here. With some birds, mm-hmm. you kind of need to get on the dogs and kind of remind them that, like, because so the birds can take it two ways. They can take it, they can take a dog in their space as an act of aggression, or they can take it as um, something they need to be fearful of. And when they're fearful, that's when it gets really not fun. Um, yeah. because if you have a bird that's afraid of the dogs, it can, it can ruin almost everything. They'll, they'll just fly away. They'll drop quarry. They'll, they'll ignore a flush and just take off. And that is not fun for anyone involved. Um, and then the aggression thing that, that can, there's obviously varying levels of that. Um, my bird is pretty good about, he's got an invisible 10 foot circle. And when he's mm-hmm. eating on a quail that he's caught or he's eating on the lure, dogs better not enter that 10 foot circle my dogs have learned it and he's pretty good at reminding my dogs when they slip up because mm-hmm. um, he's throwing feathers everywhere when he catches something and he plucks and sure it's very tempting for a dog like oh my god there's feathers everywhere i want to go eat them um yeah he, and and then the hawks have a body language too to themselves i mean they, they have hackles they can raise they have wings they can flare and a good smart dog can read all that and most of my setters and even my buddy's setters who he's got a full gun dog kennel, most of the setters I've seen don't even try it. They, they see that dog or that bird lift its wings and they're like, nah, I'm good. Um, my Visla, he, uh, he's the most in tune with what's going on. He'll go over and if he sees the hawk chasing a quail, he'll, he'll follow the, the hawk and, uh, he knows that the hawk has something more important than whatever else is going on. My setters, on the other hand, are not – I don't know if they're not in tune with it or they just don't care. Um, yeah. They tend to – they're like, well, I'm, I'm going to find birds and whatever we do, we do. But, yeah. like, if quail get up and go one way and my setters are working the other, they my setters tend to just keep working. And the vislas mm-hmm. tend to follow the bird and the cocker will follow the bird. And I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know how to train that. Um, it's just something that some of my dogs do and some of my dogs don't do. Uh, I have had dogs where I've had to kind of get in their, their rear about leave the hawk alone, not to chase the hawk. Um, mm-hmm. But more recently, I, I really just don't bring puppies around a hawk anymore. Um, it's it's a common misconception that you have to raise a dog around a hawk to make it a falconry dog. Mm-hmm. I'd rather a dog that's broke be introduced to falconry because then it, it has all the brakes installed i need on it in case the hawk the, the, the dog doesn't quite get the picture and then at that point the dog's already um had all the 
crow and raven chasing days out of it no more chasing sparrows so if it's no longer chasing non-game why would it chase a hawk so that's kind of that's kind of why i prefer to introduce a little bit older dogs at least a year or older yeah um puppies it's just you can kill a dog's confidence if they go to sniff a hawk and it binds to their nose it's it can be a very (laughs) it can be a very bad thing and i've seen it ruin some dogs Based on your um, experience and how you introduce a, a, a puppy, an older pup now to the uh, to the mix, you probably don't have to do too much off-season training where you know you have like a crippled pigeon and you know the bird comes down on it and you're doing woe training with your with your dogs uh, in that context for the most part now, right? No, yeah, I don't really have to do much of that at all. I uh, what I'll what I'll do is, I mean, I'll typically if I'm feeding my bird on the lure on say like a day I didn't hunt, I'll bring a new dog that's kind of a little bit older in on a leash and just kind of walk them up. And then I'll let the hawk display a little bit of body language. And usually at that point, the dog's already pulling back. Like I don't want to get any closer. I I very rarely have a dog that pulls the other way towards the bird. It's, Mm -hmm. it's, uh, at least with the breeds I work with, my cockers never tried it. My Vieslas, my setters never try it. Um, some of the German dogs I've had, can get a little uh um like that but uh, my yags are they listen pretty well um so they don't they don't try mm-hmm. it they know better now like and my, the hawk my never uh the hawk never what i'm sorry go ahead i would say the the hawk doesn't um i mean when it goes down on a bird i mean it's its instinct unless it really feels threatened to stay there and eat it you know you you, you haven't had experiences where yeah, the hawk comes down, grabs grabs the uh, the quail, and and wants to take off with it. Um, when my my current bird Hash Brown, he he's a, he's in his second season. Um, he used to when he was younger. Um, he used to just typically he wouldn't go too far. He would like if he caught it in the air, he would fly like I don't know, like eighty yards with it, and then find a, a like a secluded bush that he could crawl into with it, and he felt safer in that. But that wasn't just him hiding from the dogs. That's him hiding from ravens and other hawks and owls and stuff that are out there. Because those are those are definitely a concern too. Um, and then, unfortunately, like I live in Albuquerque, um, there's a lot of dog walkers in the desert that come up on me while hunting. And then there's also <laughs> feral dogs that uh, that do appear from time to time, and they're uh, honestly the worst thing to run into is feral dogs. They're uh, they're not fun. So. I'm yeah. kind of glad he can carry a quail if he needs to. He knows he can read a dog's body language too. Like if a dog's staring at him, I mean, that's, that's a display of threat. Like anytime you stare at anything, especially yeah. in the animal world, I mean, you're, you're either trying to pick a fight or something else. And, uh, so Hawks know when a, a dog is staring at them with like bated breath that like, okay, this dog is, this dog is up to something, you know, yeah, my, yeah. if you look at a lot of my photos, you, look at the dogs and look at the hawk. Most of the time the dogs aren't even looking at the hawk and it's because they know better. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. The, the world of apex predators, <laughs> right? Oh yeah, um, totally. It's, I mean, yeah. even when, even when you like, if I was to hand you my bird to hold, he'd be cool with it. But if you started to stare in his eyes, he, he's going to start to get uncomfortable and a little bit of nervy. And that's just, it's just how they work and how they're wired. I mean, even humans, if someone was staring at you walking yeah. down the street for a so, hundred yards, you're going to be like, can I help you? You know, it's just, uh, yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah. The um, so uh, on on that on the note of uh, like somebody else holding your hawk. Um, I mean, obviously he's you know he's he's a wild animal, um, and you know you you're his uh, trainer, his care provider. You know, uh, uh, you know his his falconer. Um, so there's there has to be a a bond that forms despite the fact that he's wild. You know, based on their intelligence and time spent and obviously you doing with him what he instinctively does. Um, but how would you, you know, take, uh, how would you describe, you know, the, the bond that a, that a hawk or a falcon can develop, with, you know, with their human, with their handler? Um, oh, it, it, can, it can get pretty, it can get pretty strong. Like, so falconry birds are controlled through weight. So every morning I weigh my bird before I hunt, I weigh my bird. And before I go to bed, I weigh them. That's just, that's a normal day for me. Um, and I can, so you have what's called a weight window. So he flies typically when it's cold, like this time of year, like 40 degree highs, 20 degree lows, he flies about 660 grams. I can, I can get away with him flying all the way to 690. I can, I can fly him down to 640. Um, we'll kind of delve into why too low is not good later. But uh, I can get away with a lot more because he knows me. He trusts me. And just through routine alone, I can get through a lot. Mm-hmm. But if I was to lend him to you for whatever reason, um, say you were a falconer, and uh, you tried to fly him even five grams over what I, I said is ideal for him, you're going to have a tough time if he goes and lands on a tree or goes and lands up high and you want to get him back, you're going to have a tough time with that. He'll catch game. As long as you're putting up game right away and nothing goes wrong, you'd have a good time. But it's when stuff goes wrong that that bond becomes important. Like if he gets chased off by Ravens and now he's in scared mode, um, he's just not going to come back to you. He doesn't know you. Yeah. Um, Gotcha. Yeah. Um, The, uh, uh, I mean, I, you know, we, I'm sure we could talk, for you know days and days about about uh the the depth of of falconry because like like a lot of things with animals it's both a science and an art and uh um when we when we look at the the aspect of that of that bond um uh do you uh do do people ever do people ever fly uh more than one hawk at a time or that would be kind of counter counterproductive um, you know, you, you hunt a species where you might have lots of birds go up, you know? Um, and, uh, I, I haven't, I haven't heard or necessarily seen that, but, uh, just curious, uh, if that's something that's ever done. So that is called cast flying. Cast flying is two or more birds flown in like harmony. Um, it is typically done with Harris hawks a lot all over the world. Um, because they do that naturally in the wild. Harris hawks yep. are a, they call them wolves of the sky. They fly in groups. Um, so all all across the country, they're probably the most common bird you'll see in falconry, believe it or not. Um, it's because, say, I had a Harris and you had a Harris. We could go fly our hawks at the same time, and it's no longer you watching my bird or me watching yours. Um, obviously, the birds have to know each other and have to be raised in the right way to kind of have the social cues to deal with other Harris hawks because you can – you can take a Harris hawk and make it antisocial. It's that is that is possible as well. Down in Mexico, there's a lot of falconers actually who hunt quail with casts of Harris hawks, um, and I love watching it because it's just. I mean, the grass is greener 
always on the other side of the fence. <laughs> and uh, seeing them catch oscillated quail and Mern's quail and elegant quail and banded quail and masked bobwhite, I'm just like foaming at the mouth because I could go down there and hunt them with my dogs, but I can't bring my bird. That's the only, that's the thing mm-hmm. that kind of sucks with falconry is bringing the bird. It, it becomes a whole new thing. Um, sometimes they'll open up the port and we can bring our birds to Canada sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like kind of a rare occasion. Mexico doesn't do it that I know of. And it's not so much us bringing birds into Mexico. It's us bringing birds back here. It's our, it's our own regulations that shoot us in the foot. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah. I, I, uh, you mentioned the Harris Hawks and, uh, um, you know, my highly respected, uh, <laughs> nemesis with, with my, my pigeon life and career. Uh, I, I, I've seen, uh, some amazing aerial displays and, uh, the, the Harris Hawks, uh, um, uh, they, they, I don't know if they're more migratory and more nomadic than other Hawks. I don't, the one, my experience has been, they, they don't seem to hang. I seem to be able to get them to move on more by changing the, days and times i let the birds out whereas the gosh hawks uh you know they they're pretty much hiding a conifer near star themselves and wait until i know i'm gonna let the birds out again but uh the yeah um, i mean they i mean they call goshawks the gray ghosts for a reason like i've spent months looking for goshawk nests and in areas i know they exist and yeah. they're just a rare treat they're there it's just you know oh, they're yeah. like bob they're like bobcats they're very good at just staying out of eyesight yeah, and I've I've seen them I've seen them uh, basically swoop from one tree to the other while the birds are you know they always they they'd always go after my birds uh, you know when they're when they're going on descent to to land on the landing board you know when they know they're pretty much trapped you know um, and the birds if they I always know when there's the birds around the hawks around because the pigeons would go pin high in the air knowing as long as they stay above that hawk they're okay. You know, um, so it's uh, it's always been fascinating to, to see that uh, dynamic. And I myself have you know, ever since I was a young teenager wanted to do falconry. And back in New York, um, something I, I wanted to ask you about in terms of the general process of becoming a falconer, um, uh, at least back when I was was looking and realizing that it's it's uh, truly not a hobby. It's definitively a lifestyle. Um, and my dog life just has not ever allowed it to to come to be but it was like a two-year apprenticeship to be able to to obtain a hawk and then another three years beyond that to be able to obtain a falcon is that is that a state-to-state thing or or federal what's the what's the so every state is different but they all have to follow the general federal guidelines Mm -hmm. so what it is is you you when you get your permit in hand and you get your apprentice permit you go and get your hawk that week if you want to. You can go get your hawk that day. As soon as you have that permit in hand, you and your sponsor are going to go trap a red tail. And basically what what he's going to do is he's going to overshadow you with that red tail or kestrel um, for two years. And just to make sure that you're actually doing things right and taking game. Because, I mean, that's the goal of falconry is not to have this pet wild hawk. It's to catch game. So once your sponsor, like, witnesses or notify or notices that you're you're taking wild game with a wild taken raptor he then signs off and then when your two years is up then you can kind of move into other birds like goshawks um cooper's hawks whatever you want peregrines so that's that's the why that's why it's written that way and that's why it is that way so like if you were to go take your test tomorrow 
um, build your muse, which is basically like a pigeon loft for hawks. Um, there's, I mean, obviously there's a lot that's different, but it's, it's an eight by eight by eight structure that, uh, game and fish comes in and inspects. And once the inspection's complete, they sign off and you get your permit and then you and your sponsor would go trap a bird together. So theoretically you can, you can have it all done within two, three weeks. Um, obviously there's studying to pass your test, but um, sure. it's um, for someone who wants to do it. The studying is very, first of all, it's written at a third grade level. It's meant for 12 year olds to pass. So mm-hmm. it is, it's not that hard. Um, yeah. If you want to do it. So, yeah. Yeah. Cool. I, I was, uh, I was, uh, uh, amazed and impressed uh, with um, with the number well, when I when I had looked up you know like New York Falconry Federation or whatever their title was I was really impressed with the number of falconers that were well, what is there uh, like four or five hundred of them I don't know if there was that many I just uh, I mean I'm I I was always the nature kid going to these camps and, you know, always involved in the outdoors and all these different organizations that, that, uh, you know, kind of be aware of those. And every, everybody in the community kind of knew like the two or three people, you know, that, that had Hawks. But when you looked on a state level, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it was at least a, I I would say a a couple hundred, um, which I was kind of thinking like, Oh, let me find these 20 guys in the state of New York that, that I might be able to mentor with. And, it was far beyond that. So, what's your uh, what's your take um, in the world of falconry? I would is it is falconers it growing can be. So I wouldn't say falconry is growing. Um, there's a ton of falconers that are over fifty, and then there's kind of like a, a gap, like forties and thirties. There isn't a lot, and then in the last eight years, the falconers under thirty five have just taken a massive jump. So like. I wouldn't say there's any more falconers than there ever has been historically, but the age of them right now is it's starting to become the majority of falconers are young and a lot of them are women. There's a ton of women falconers. I'd say at least one out of three falconers is a woman right now. And it's, it's really cool to see that, that uh, paradigm shift. Yeah, that's awesome. I think that that goes a little bit in line, uh, I think with um, just uh, women and upland hunting in general too, you know, so. Oh, especially upland. Yeah. It's, um, but, but for the most part and historically, a lot of falconers were as secretive as some of the birds they flew. They just, they just tried to stay out of the limelight. um, Mm -hmm. But it doesn't really have to be that way. And uh, of course we're, we're seeing that. And now we kind of need people to be loud and advocate for it. Sure. Um, sure. What my kind of mission over the last five years has been, uh, I've been trying to pull people that are already upland hunters into falconry. Not that falconry needs more falconers, but I, I would like to see more falconers fly upland game because I'd say most falconers, like ninety percent, fly ducks, rabbits, or squirrels. That's it. They don't. The the occasional one <laughs> might catch some pheasant here and there, but. I mean, at any given time, I, I'd say there's less than a dozen falconers that even chase quail. Um, yeah. yeah. So, huh. I guess, uh, yeah, that's that's funny. I mean, obviously, I mean, you and I, we, we can't imagine hunting up, <laughs> upland without a, without a dog, but these people might not even be upland hunters uh, initially, I guess, uh, when they get into falconry. Yeah, I mean, pretty much east of the Mississippi, they're flying squirrels or, squirrels or ducks. Like, a lot of the falconers by you are probably squirrel hawkers. 
uh-huh. or they hunt ducks on the salt marshes and in creeks. Um, it's yeah. Just, Interesting. Very interesting. The, um, so kind of, kind of, uh, hitting the rewind button. Um, how'd you, how'd you get into this? I know, you know, you have a military background, you were overseas. Do you ever have the opportunity to see it overseas or, uh, um, I think you actually, I don't know if you grew up on the East coast. I know you have family or history here too. So tell us a little bit about like how, how Tyler got into all this. So I grew up in Massachusetts. Um, mostly deer and turkey hunting. Um, I didn't even really duck hunt that much. Like me and my, me and my family, we would, we would jump shoot ducks on the salt marshes, but like, I didn't, I didn't even get into throwing out decoys until this last year. But, um, when I was in the army, uh, there was a flyer for a falconry meet and, uh, it wasn't too far away. It was like an hour and a half away. And when I was in the army, I I really, really tried to take advantage of any free time they gave us. So I was like, you know what, I'm going to go do that. And I've always been a photographer. So that kind of, kind of drove that because i'm like i mean i mean any photographer knows like your photos are only as cool as your subject sometimes so um i was like well falconry man i never see photos of that so i went and took pictures and i was watching um a group of guys they all had hair socks so they had like it was like three or four hair socks and then they had a couple terriers and they were squirrel hawking and these these hair socks they do communicate they're they um they have like grunts and subtle vocalizations to each other to like kind of talk and the dogs can pick up on that too. And they were working all together to catch these squirrels and the dogs are following the hawks and the hawks would follow the dogs. And then a dog would run off and tree another squirrel and all the hawks would fly as fast as they could over to that dog to see what that dog had treed. And I was just like, this is unreal, man. Like this is crazy. Like who knew this existed? Um, and, uh, when I saw that I, I got some books and, I had read about falconry and I had read about pheasant hawking, um, with a goshawk. And for years, that's what I wanted to do. And, uh, and I, I've caught quite a few pheasant with my goshawk, but I actually came to love quail hawking a lot more. Just covey birds are just, covey birds are so much fun to me. So that's, that's kind of where it started and how I, I got the idea. Um, I squirrel hawked for a little while while I lived in Missouri and then I got into quail hawking there on Bob Whites. And uh, right about that time, when I was starting to get good at quail hawking on Bob Whites, um, a job offer in the, the company I worked for opened up down here. And I knew how much better the quail was down here. So I moved down here. It took me a good uh, two years to figure out desert quail. Um but once I got them figured out, I, I now I just love them. I don't want to ever give them up. They're so much fun to me. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so uh, I remember uh, I had a uh, – I, I didn't know him personally. I was too young. But back when I was in my racing pigeon club, we, we actually had a member that was a falconer. And I'll never forget this time that, like, he had to – and this could have been just – his mistake or it's just something that happens sometimes and so we were in upstate new york and and uh the guy's name was fred and they're like hey fred's not shipping the race this week he's like no he had to go get his hawk i was like and everybody's like what do you mean he had to go he had to drive to maryland <laughs> you know um and uh so do we do you have or when i say you, you know, falconers you know is there any any stories or um, uh, training logistics that, uh, you know, you get flyaways? Um, and uh, tell a little bit about that. So birds wear 
uh, falconry birds wear transmitters. Almost every falconer uses a transmitter now. So you, we have ways to track them. And uh, birds do fly off. Um, I mean, I track my bird pretty regularly. And it's not just because he flew off. I mean, sometimes I get a half-mile quail flight. And I'm like, I mean, in the sage step, that half mile of sage looks pretty similar. So yeah. I, you just have to kind of find them. Um, and then there is, uh, most falconers are pretty good about helping other falconers recover birds. Um, like a, a friend of mine recently, her bird flew off. Um, it was getting dark and like a dirt bike spooked it. And as soon as she texted me, I was already out there in my sweatpants with a, tr- a receiver trying to help her track it down. It's just, it's kind of like an unwritten thing. Like, Hey, if, if your bird flies off, you, Every, everyone's going to come help you, but when theirs flies off, you better go help them too. Cause looking for them by yourself sucks. It's, uh, yeah. but especially when you get signal bouncing in the city and off buildings, um, typically Hawks don't really fly off as much as per se, like, uh, Falcons do. And it's just, that comes down to the style of flying too. So Hawks generally are flown from the fist. Um, mm-hmm. this is, this is me speaking in general terms. There's, there is people that fly hawks like falcons. And then there's falcons who fly what we would call waiting on, where you'd have a setup, or whether it be a dog on point or ducks marked on a pond, you'd unhood that falcon, and that falcon would climb 500, 1,000, 1,500 feet above you. And then you would run in and flush whatever it was, and they would stoop out of their elevation at a really high speed and hit it and kill it or bind to it um, and then kill it on the ground. Or sometimes they think you took too long to flush it or they see something far away. Because if you can imagine when you're at 1,500 feet, you can see a lot. So they might check off and go chase poor Kyle's racing pigeons or something like <laughs> that. And uh, that does happen. Um, it's it's not fun. It's not ideal. But uh, it, it happens more with, I'd say, young birds. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, they, they'll, they'll check off because they're... They're like, well, is he going to flush these ducks? Ah, there's pigeons over here flying around the solar panel. Let's go check that out. And yeah, they yeah. go do that. Yeah. So the, um, I mean, there's uh, there's clearly a matter of, of training in regards to the hawk learning, um, you know, that, that you're a team and with the dogs that you're a team. <laughs> but as you just described at the end of the day, they're, they're still a wild animal and they're looking for food. Um, so uh, there's, there's not really a way to to discipline the hawk to 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 say don't go after those 50 free meals over there just stay right here with the with uh with with us and eventually these ducks are going to get up uh you know it's that i guess is a huge difference between the yeah, and, of, of your team the hawk team and the and the dog team and the, and that, those fly offs it can be a self-rewarding behavior that can be a nightmare to correct and you may never correct it like they're going to learn really quick that a pigeon's a lot easier than a Drake Mallard. So, and the only way to avoid it is flying places that they, they just can't go do that until they're really, really wed to ducks. Yeah. Um, that's cool. Um, so when, uh, when we look at the, um, uh, the diet of your hawk, um, uh, you know, talking about weights before and stuff, uh, maybe, uh, let's take a minute or two and, and tell us about, uh, you know, how you feed them. I mean, obviously, in nature, maybe maybe hawks don't eat every day, you know. But obviously, um, you know, being captive, 
uh, and between how much you you do get the hunt and uh, what you might supply for him yourself, uh, what's what's that uh, what's that picture look like? So, my bird will just speak in my bird in this this regard. He eats about a hundred grams of food a day to sustain his regular body weight. That's while being flown hard, um, catching every day, and sleeping outside in like twenty degree weather. That he eats about 100 grams of something with fat in it. So about 100 grams of duck or 100 grams of rabbit with a little bit of fat mixed in. If I was to just feed him 100 grams of just quail breast, it wouldn't sustain as well. So you figure out which which meats um, sustain. Um, so typically what I'll do is I, I figure out what he burns per hour eating different things. So like quail, he burns about 10 grams an hour eating quail um, versus duck, he'll burn two grams an hour. So that just tells you right there how much more nutrient-dense duck is than quail. Quail, I, we call quail cotton candy. It's it's really not that nutrient-dense when it comes – those birds don't have much fat on them at all. And I always thought they did, but um, once, once you start figuring out grams per hour, you're like, wow, there's really not much on a quail at all. Hmm. Insane. I wonder if that's a, is that a, 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 I mean, it's just the species, but a, a dark meat, light meat thing. Um, they're almost, they're like, they're like a light pink. They're almost translucent. They're so light. Quail are uh, just not that, they're not like a late season grouse. They're not like a sharp tail. Uh-huh. <coughs> yeah. Interesting. So um, obviously your primary habitat that you hunt is desert and, and more open country at, at least. Um, you and I have, communicated a bit over the last few years you know uh about uh uh rough grouse hunting uh with raptors and um uh i had a message going with uh somebody uh up in alaska that that does it and and they they're hunting roughs uh with with their raptor up there and i think he's if i recall i think he said that the uh gosh hawk has like in that type of terrain, you know, um, has like a 10 or 15 percent chance, you know, percent chance of, of getting the game. And while that sounds really low, honestly, probably the average grouse hunter is a, you know, a 20 percent shot on these birds. Um, yeah, 15 percent might know. sound low, but that's that's really pretty high when you get to thinking about it. That's what I mean. I thought of- so in regards to, you know how many people I I've always seen missing these, these birds flying through dense forests, you know? So, um, yeah, I I mean, that's that one in five, good. really. That's pretty yeah. dang good. Yeah, no, that, that's, uh, that's impressive. Um, but do you think that while I know, I know the gosh hawk, you know, lives all over North America, um, and certainly in the grouse woods and I, and I've seen them take grouse. Um, do you think that a, a smaller raptor like a Cooper's hawk um, would be, um, for, as far as falconry goes, or hawking, I guess, um, better equipped for an upland hunter. So like there myself was in here. There was a falconer in Canada who tried it for years with Cooper's hawks, and the the general consensus was no. Um, grout. So grouse are very slippery anyone who's held a grouse in their hand knows those feathers just fall off them that's mm-hmm. a defense mechanism and it, what it is is when hawks 
go to grab, they're grabbing feathers. And when they pull feathers, they didn't get anything and that grouse got away. And those feathers will come right back. They'll grow back in a couple weeks. So um, the problem that they were having with Cooper's hawks catching them is there's really nowhere on a grouse to grab other than the head um, mm-hmm. that a Cooper's hawk could really hold on well hmm. and then wow. subdue it on its own. So then a lot of times once the Cooper's hawks got them to the ground, the grouse were able to break free with just by beating them with their wings and stuff like that and just slipping away that way. Yeah. So pretty much what they found is it was kind of a fluke thing if a, Coop, a Cooper's hawk caught one. Goshawks have much bigger feet, and uh, when you look at the spread on a a goshawk's toe, you can just you can see why they can they can subdue a grouse. They're yeah, they're just better yeah. equipped for it. Huh, that's fascinating. It makes a lot of sense. Um, so do you, uh, I mean I know you have a male. Is there is there a preference within uh, the hawking world that like you want a male or a female, or it really doesn't make a difference? Um, yeah, it this this is. I'm going to make a lot of people upset with this. Um, <laughs> a lot of falconers fly the biggest bird possible, and it, it's more of like an ego thing, really. Mm-hmm. Um, just this big bird, and they want to catch really big game, and it's and drive away in their big truck. Um, it's I don't really care for that. I, I mean, and then there, there are things they do catch that require a big bird. Like, if you want to catch jackrabbits, you're going to need a female goshawk. That's, mm-hmm. that's just how it is. Um, you can catch them with a male, but um, it's going to take the right male, and it's it's more of a rodeo than a flight. Mm-hmm. So I prefer males because they're smaller, faster, more aerial. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the quarry I'm hunting is small, fast, and aerial, so it's more matched. A female can catch quail, but a male is going to catch quail and do it in a way that I enjoy watching because that's the goal of falconry. It's not just catching a limit i've only caught a limit of quail like twice in my life with a bird and Mm -hmm. uh it's more enjoying seeing what the quail can do and seeing the goshawk adapt to that and like watching the twists and turns in the midair dog fight that that kind of ensues that's the goal of falconry is if you're not enjoying the flight you're not doing what you should be doing um Mm -hmm. and you're kind of missing the whole point of it yeah yeah you know something that uh uh you know, up here, um, a lot of people will, will run their dogs, uh, with, uh, beepers. And I have seen, uh, uh, you know, these, uh, uh, people that will run their beepers and they got this hawk screech. And I've always felt that I was like, if you want a hawk screech, get a, get a real hawk. I kind of feel that it's, it's cheating a, a bit because, uh, the, the, the better hawk screech simulation sounds, uh, I'm amazed on, you know, we get these dogs, you know, up here and they'll, you know, some people's dogs go 200 more yards and you'll hear that collar and you'll get there. And that bird is, hasn't moved an inch. Um, do, you know, I'm shocked if, uh, it even works. Cause what's funny, cause the call, the too. beepers I've heard is, uh, yeah. it's a red tail, it's a red tailed hawk territorial scream, uh-huh. which uh-huh. red tails are more akin to kind of catch things with fur, not feather. Yeah. Yeah, and then they're using a territorial scream too. So, like when a red tail's screaming that scream, it's because they're fighting with another bird over territory. It's not because they're yeah. trying to like the, scare uh, the I, crap out of their food. I don't I know. Think it, the one, I think the one that I heard that uh, see that at least sounds like a hawk. Some of these things just sound like robotic sounds, you know. But uh, 
uh, there's the older Lovitz collar is what I, I know some, some guys that I know, uh, that, uh, have ran it on the Hawk screech and, and it works, you know, whether or not it actually is communicating to, uh, another Hawk would identify it as, as a Hawk or not. I have no idea, but I, I've been, I've been, a wildly impressed uh with how how birds up here in this area particularly they, they i mean they really really uh run sometimes hundreds of yards and man i've i've seen uh i've seen uh those dogs with and without those beepers that have a big range really hold those birds uh uh pretty tight but if you're if you're working a uh we'll say a gauche hawk your hawk you know uh, up here um i i, don't, I know you said uh Kira has been up to Wisconsin. I don't know if you've had the opportunity to, to do it yet or not, but uh, how do you how do you see how do you see you know your Northwoods hunt going with Hash Brown in terms of you know uh, him staying on your arm in that situation or do you I mean I've I've literally seen these gouch hawks like eyeing my birds and planning their attack by like tree hopping you know um, as you go through the woods. Um, see that's uh, that's what's going to be hard for us. Um, my bird's not even used to dealing with trees. Yeah. So I don't know if he's just going to land up in a tree and kind of wait for a, I'm probably going to have to hold him until Mm -hmm. we get a bird pointed Mm -hmm. and hopefully it doesn't take too long. Yeah. It'll be a a learning curve. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be a learning curve. Um, now if it's like young Aspen cuts, I don't see him landing in a young Aspen, but if Mm -hmm. it's like mature trees, he's going to want to go land in them. It's just, it's just hardwired yeah. into them. Yeah, yeah. So, but I do think that if everything if everything can go right and uh, he's in a good mood and I got to walk in and flush one, I think uh, he'd have pretty good success. Just because there's really not much places a rough grouse can go that a goshawk cannot. Like quail can cut through bushes and go down little like holes, but a rough grouse is very similar in size to him. So. I just mm-hmm. don't see it evading him on the ground. It's yeah. going to either have to outfly him or it's not going to get away at all. Yeah, and it can. They usually, I mean, most of the time, you know, later season certainly, if you got your younger cuts, um, they can get up and over and they'll and they'll sail pretty far. But most of the time, you're talking, uh, you know, a, a thirty to sixty yard burst that's staying, you know, ten ten to twenty feet tops before the bird drops down again in this cover and. Um, and it'd be uh, interesting. We got we got to make that happen so we can see what actually does happen. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm really uh, curious to see. Um, who knows? It might be my new favorite thing. Um, yeah. Obviously, that's you couldn't get a more natural quarry for an, a native bird. Yeah, uh, rough grouse with goshawks. I mean, anyone who's been to a goshawk nest in their life has found either blue grouse or rough grouse feathers. It just they they yeah. do eat them. Um, yeah. Well, like I said, what, five times in in my rough grouse hunting career i've i've had the hawk take take the bird either uh hit it in flight or or be right on it right after i shot it and obviously those birds those birds were camped out staked out you know knowing those birds were around just waiting for the opportunity to because they came out of a tree somewhere and uh just you know we're we're on it you know super quickly so uh and i and i've had um you know where I grew up, we had we had a few pigeon lofts on on my road, um, and I, I remember riding my bike down down the road, and it, very wooded. You know, everybody had several acres, and it's all wooded, small yards, and 
we all have the pigeon lofts back off the road on the wooded side and you literally see these hawks uh you know just like coasting like they're almost like you think like flying squirrels going from tree to tree you know these were hardwoods they weren't as dense as like what we have with these aspen up here but um you know they would just coast and just kind of check the status on on these uh pigeon lofts um through the trees so i i kind of have this again it's romantic but i have this romantic vision that that the hawk is kind of um you know uh going through these uh trees because we don't like we, we're walking quickly through the woods but you're, you're it's not like you're um uh, I, c- I could see a raptor you know negotiating its way uh uh through the woods especially like you said they learn they learn the dog's body language and they learn they learn to follow that dog and i i think i think i would imagine that people that are falconers that do hunt uh in the north woods that the the hawk might be even more connected to the dog based on the reduced visibility. Um, yeah. You know. Yeah. This, this might surprise you, but uh, most of the falconers that catch rough grouse uh, actually have red tails um, and <laughs> they're not out there looking for rough grouse. They're looking for snowshoe hair mm-hmm. and uh, they, and the rough grouse really just doesn't realize that the human has a hawk with them and, uh, the rough grouse will fly to a low tree branch and then just get smoked by a red tail that's 80 feet above them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Huh. There, well, it does, there it are, does, I guess it doesn't surprise me because, because I, uh, you know, the, the hares have cycles like the grouse do, but, um, there's, there's not too many days where I don't see several snowshoe hares out in the woods. So I could, I yeah, could I was talking to Bailey about happens. that. They seem to be kind of an indicator species of each other. If it's good for hares, it's good for grouse. And Absolutely. Vice versa. Absolutely. I mean, you know, even in great grouse cover with the snow on the ground, we've had snow pretty much since mid October here. Um, you know, in great grouse cover with, with good numbers of grouse, you'll always still see more <laughs> snowshoe hair tracks than you will grouse, you know? So it, it's uh, just like down here. If you can find quail here, you will yeah. find cottontails, you will find jackrabbits, you will find everything. But if it just if, if it's good enough for quail, it's good enough for everything. And uh, that's why I think more game and fish departments should focus on their their small game habitat. And they'll, they'll come to realize that, hey, uh, if we care about our small game, it's going to be good for everything. So, Tyler, tell me about, um, in terms of hunting with your hawk, um, in the lower 48, obviously minus Hawaii and Alaska. Um, what's entailed if you, if you want to come up here to, to Michigan to go hunting or, or anywhere across the lower 48 for that matter with, uh, with you and your hawk, uh, legally? Um, so most states, um, it's pretty, um, reciprocal. They honor my falconry permit, no matter where I am, because every state follows the federal guidelines as far as falconry is concerned. Um, there's a couple states and they're usually, um, avian production states, like states that have a lot of chicken farms that have a little bit stricter of laws, uh, Colorado, the Dakotas, um, Nebraska all come to mind. Um, they just require health certs and, uh, an email or a letter of importation from the game and fish department. Um, most of it's a dog and pony show. Um, if we're being honest. Um, if I'm bringing my bird to a vet to get a health certificate, there's no way to like for them to know by looking at my bird it doesn't have avian flu, uh, mm-hmm. other than the fact that my bird is alive, so there's a good chance it doesn't. Um, 
avian flu is gnarly and it, it'll it'll kill birds pretty quick. So, um, so yeah, that's so that's why that is. Um, but like for me to go to Michigan, I would just need to buy a small game license, an upland stamp, and just like I was gun hunting. Now some states have a falconry overlay on their seasons and uh, limits. So even though it's within gun season here to hunt quail, um, I can only take six quail with my bird, but I can go shoot 15 and those limits are in agreement. So I can catch six with my bird and then go shoot the remainder to get to 15, but I can't shoot 15 and then go catch six. It's not, that's not how that works. I don't get bonus birds. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Still the same person. <laughs> Yeah, uh, um, it's not very clearly stated, but I'm not going to be the one to try and press that issue. And I don't, Falconry sure. doesn't need negative attention. Um, we get, most states are really cool. Like for right now, um, I've got to pick up a dog in Wisconsin in March. And technically their falconry season for upland birds as a whole for falconry goes all the way to March 31st. So I could chase rough grouse. Uh, I think the limit's like two a day or something. It's not mm-hmm. full five, but you, it, I mean, it's it's a lot harder. So an extended season makes sense. Sure, sure. Um, so uh, tell me a little bit about. Um, uh, so let's say Hash Brown. Um, he takes he takes down a quail, and um, you know. You know, I, I see a lot of pictures of him, you know, kind of like mantling the bird. And um, uh, sometimes he's got his beak in the bird. Sometimes he doesn't. But what's uh, like what percentage of the bird in general or, um, uh, uh, you know, birds you give him? How does it work in terms of like how much do you get the versus hash brown when it comes to the when you're when you're hunting with your hawk? So. The average quail weighs 180 to 220 grams, and that's pretty much true for all six species. Um, So what I typically can do is if I give him a leg and a thigh um, per quail that he catches, it's, it's about all he needs, and then I can keep the remainder. If I need to keep the entire quail intact for, say, taxidermy purposes or whatever, I can... I'll already have something ready for him. Um, usually it's about 20, 15 to 20 grams, whether it be a piece of a rabbit leg or something like that. And uh, I can get the entire quail. He doesn't start plucking and tearing in usually until I'm within like 10 feet. So even though he catches it sometimes 300 to 800 yards away, um, he'll drag it into a bush and cover it up. And what he's doing is he's waiting for a safe moment where there's no ravens overhead, no red tails, eagles, etc. And he feels 100% safe. And usually he doesn't feel 100% safe until I'm there. He's eaten next to me his whole life. So that's just mm. when he chooses to eat. Is there a, is there a difference um, between, we'll say, a, a captive hawk like him? Obviously, he gets, he gets uh, you know, if you guys happen to not catch something, it's not like you go home and you don't feed him, right? You know, so say a hawk that um, is living out in the wild and is, is starving, might they might they be tearing into that bird much more quickly? I, I certainly Oh, absolutely. Feel, if yeah. I uh, if I was flying a wild trap bird um, in Falconry, you'll hear them referred to as passage birds because they're trapped in their passage year. Um, nothing typically eats faster than a wild trapped bird. Um, 
Like I've had red tails that'll scarf down an entire rabbit if you take too long to get there. And yeah, uh, yeah you got to be a lot quicker. But um, the trade-off is typically a red tail's not catching a rabbit 800 yards away. Sure. Uh, I don't have the experience with passage trapped goshawks to really speak on that. I don't, I don't know how they are, but I'd imagine they need a little bit quicker and break in quicker. He's, yeah. he's what my bird's what's called an imprint. He's hand reared. So hit a lot of his mannerisms are just based on what he was raised with and how he was raised. So he's eaten next to me his entire life. So he just continues to do so. Like, even mm-hmm. if I give him food in his chamber outside, he'll kind of, wait around for an hour before he even really starts to eat it sometimes he's just waiting for a moment of comfort yeah the um maybe going back to something you said earlier in our conversation about the different size hawks and the quarry that they're capturing but you know uh, I've, ha- I've i've come across many of uh cr- crime scenes with my pigeons uh, in my life and depending upon which hawk or falcon for that matter um has got the bird on the ground and has killed it or holding it the gash hawks usually when like when i'm coming in um they take the bird with them if uh you know if they see me coming in hot (laughs) Um, yeah like the coopers and stuff i feel like they're like they're like in a hot dog eating contest they got that you know they got that bird down they're just like going after it and maybe because they can't take it away with them you know and they're starving it's a combination of things. Like a Cooper's hawk is on the menu for a lot of birds, whereas a goshawk really is not. Um, mm-hmm. um, same thing with like a red tail. They're not really as worried about getting eaten as <laughs> say like a kestrel would be. A kestrel's life to a kestrel is a lot more important than a meal, so they're just going to drop it and bail. Sure, sure. Um, so of all these uh, all these uh, raptors that you know basically. Uh, you could put on your falconry permit. Um, what what birds are on your bucket list that that you haven't had the opportunity to handle or um, or own at this point? I've pretty much seen almost every native species that's typically used in falconry catch wild game. Um, none really um, are on my bucket list, other than like a Cooper's hawk eventually. Um, however, a, a European sparrowhawk or an ornate hawk eagle are definitely two that if I was to break out of my comfort zone right now, it are, are two birds that I would absolutely do it for. Um, a Eurasian sparrowhawk is basically a Cooper's hawk that's smaller, faster, and has a way better attitude, um, than our Cooper's hawks. Hmm. Our Cooper's hawks are notoriously grumpy, temperamental birds, hmm. um, and I just haven't mustered up the level of masochism it takes to deal with that, to fly one and enjoy it. Yeah. Um, and then the, the, the ornate hawk eagles, they're like a, a red tail goshawk almost, but they're, they're like a big goshawk that's equipped to live in the tropical jungle and forests and they're, and they're also, they're drop dead gorgeous. If you get a chance to look at one, they're, they're definitely my favorite bird as in terms of looks goes. That's cool. Um, so what about when, um, uh, when you're looking at, uh, dog breeds, obviously, you know, 
certain uh, certain breeds have history with the uh, falconry and whatnot, and we know the the group of dogs that you have. Um, but uh, would you say uh, you know the, the we know the the Vishla has a has a very long history with falconry and and uh, setters do as as well for sure. Um, but being in the upland community, um, what what um, breeds would you say um, uh, your your falconry community that hunts upland uh, utilizes for dogs? Um, what you'll see most of, as far as falconers that take upland game, are pretty much setters, pointers, and a good splash of Britneys and short hairs. Um, Munsterlanders are definitely making, um, they're coming in vogue. You're starting to see a lot more Munsterlanders, um, as well as Cocker Spaniels. But I, I think those are both trends that are spilling over from gun hunting as well. Um, we're definitely seeing more Munsters and Cockers and gun, the gun hunting side of things too. So it was a matter yeah. of time. But cockers were traditionally falconry dogs, and they, they make a great falconry dog. Um, they, they naturally want to be close anyways, so mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that makes for less complicated falconry as a whole. Sure. And I guess if you're pursuing both uh, feather and fur, makes sense that you'd see um, the versatile breeds in there. Oh, yeah. It blows my mind that it, it's taken this long for that really to happen. Um, it, it, people ask me all the time if I could only run one breed, um, what would I do? And, and and that's to cover all aspects of falconry. And honestly, it would be a Springer or a Cocker because mm-hmm. um, they can do a little bit of everything just good enough to really add a good layer of success. Um, I love my setters to death, but they are definitely niche to what I do. And sure. uh, I really wouldn't want to. I mean, there's falconers that hunt squirrels behind Home Depots and on the east coast like i wouldn't want to do that with an english setter that would not be fun (laughs) yeah no definitely not um uh one other question i had for you in regards to your hawk um and obviously i know it depends on the time of year and elevation and and everything i am anything but a snake expert i i try to avoid i i settled on an area that does not have poisonous anything pretty much besides the brown recluse spider um but uh uh, do you have, based on when your hunting season is and where you hunt uh, in the Southwest, do you have um, snake activity occurring during your hunting season? And if so, uh, does does your does the hawk ever want to go rogue on a on a on the? I know you got some pretty large snakes down there. Do, do they want to go after them? I know different um, different breeds or different species of hawks might may or may not. I've I've caught a handful of snakes with red tails and Harris hawks. Um, however, I've run into just as many snakes flying goshawks, and goshawks are very, very, very keen on movement. And typically, when you run into a rattlesnake or something like that, they don't they don't take off Baja and across the desert like a rabbit will. So they just it's really easy to avoid. So he's never caught a snake. Um, I've found a couple of rattlesnakes while out with him and his, his baby bird year, his brown bird year, he, uh, we were out there hunting early September. Um, so yeah, we definitely ran into more snakes than I was used to. Um, the dogs I run are, I, I do a pretty good job keeping them snake broke. Um, and we, we tend to avoid issues. Uh, my dogs definitely know what that rattle noise means. So, 
Yeah. And the, uh, I would imagine also probably more, uh, again, uh, gosh, hawks living in the wild would be more inclined to go after a snake than, you know, well-fed hash brown. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't yeah. know how much, but I mean, typically in the warm months, they're living above 7,000 feet. So I don't really know how much snakes they're really running into. Yeah. Right. Right. Huh. Interesting. Well, Tyler, um, uh, been a wealth of information. It's been a lot of fun, uh, getting to talk to a falconer that, that hunts upland and has a gang of dogs, including a bunch of setters. And it's, uh, it's been really great. And I, I really appreciate your time today. Um, and, uh, anybody that wants to get in touch with you about falconry, um, uh, you know, or photography, um, for upland or falcons as well, what, uh, uh, how would they contact you? Uh, you can find me on Instagram. I'm under there under Quailhawk, um, and then you can just search my name on Facebook. Um, I'll get back to anyone. I'm happy to take, and if you make it to my part of my, the country, I will take anyone out with the bird. Um, it's I, I will never tell anybody no. So um, if you make it out here, just get in touch, and we'll get you on some birds. And um, I hope you, I hope you enjoy it or realize that it's too much work for you, but you're happy to watch. So. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. And uh, everybody, this is Setter Talk. I'm your host, Kyle Warren. Our guest today was Tyler Slayton. And uh, thanks so much for listening. Until next time, give your setter a scratch in the head for me and make it a great day.